Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. In March 1883, Karl Marx passed from this life into eternity. A basic understanding of his thoughts regarding the God of heaven and earth would lead one to believe he lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Reportedly, nine people attended his funeral. Marx was by no means the beloved philosopher he appears to be today. The nine that stood among his graveside, assuming there were no hopes of collecting money he most assuredly owed them, may have thought his wretched philosophy would die with him. Unfortunately, the more than 100 million dead souls, whose blood scattered throughout the 20th century, as well as the sudden resurgence of Marxist ideas in the 21st century, prove such a thought to be incorrect. Fortunately, men like Alexander Solzhenitsyn and George Orwell endured to the end of even their own presuppositions. They lived to tell of the torture, control, and death caused by the implementation of Marxist philosophy. But we have come so far since that time, right? (laughs) Morality has evolved, right? Solzhenitsyn made it shameful in his day to declare oneself a Marxist. And yet, here we are again. After the death of Karl Marx, the Fabian Socialist Society was formed in London. Marxism and socialism created a small divide here. Socialism predates Marxism, though in the days of Karl Marx, they came to be inseparable. The Fabian Socialists were less revolutionary in their tactics. They believed it prudent to work within the local democratic system and respective societal institutions to convert a country to socialism. Socialism always leads to communism, but this group had a more gentle approach to the eventual death of a society. They would spread throughout Europe, slowly and quietly like a pandemic from China. By the time the 1940s came around, the world was at war with one of the most prominent socialists in power, Adolf Hitler. As head of the Nationalist Socialist Party, he implemented his own brand of collectivist ideology to the utter dismay of Germany's citizens. 
As this socialist superpower came to fruition, many fled Germany before these destructive ideologies consumed them. It is good to note the dangers of ideologies, especially when we hear a politician declare Black Lives Matter and Antifa are nothing more than ideologies. Among the refugees fleeing Nazi Germany were the founders of what came to be known as the Frankfurt School of Socialism at Columbia University in New York. Ironically, these men were Jews fleeing socialist Germany to escape certain death. Thus, they found it sensible to receive the freedom America offers. Upon arrival, they labored to establish the very ideology they were running from in Hitler's socialist Germany. This is reminiscent of a woman in an abusive relationship refusing to leave the man who abuses her. The founders, commonly recognized as Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Herbert Mercuse, Leo Lowenthal, and Friedrich Pollock, these men were brought to America with the help and guidance of John Dewey, the prominent socialist who created the modern American school system. These men began developing and implementing theories meant to purposefully corrupt the United States of America. They understood America would not be taken by force, though they were of the revolutionary brand of Marxism. Instead of a Marxist Soviet-style revolution, they would have to win the minds of society by other means. Cultural Marxism was birthed and put to work. Ultimately, these men relied upon the Marxist Cultural Revolution Handbook written by Antonio Gramsci. Socialists in America and the Frankfurt School of Socialism have used Gramsci's work as the baseline for cultural Marxism since the 1930s. Gramsci understood cultural revolution requires the total corruption of the target society. It seems he gathered that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The more society could be encouraged to revel in their sin, the more shattered that society becomes. It seems that Balaam was still around in the 1930s. Once America and the free world brought about the destruction of Germany, the West and its ideas became the dominant world power led by America. And yet America moved forward as though it had no ideological framework to guide the country. It was as though we had no founding fathers with strong philosophical ideals of freedom to propagate. Instead, America began looking to the respective intellectual refugees who fled Europe's destruction. America's academic elite became enamored with Gramscian cultural revolutionary tactics as well as with critical theory. Critical theory is objectively petty and juvenile, but that is the ultimate goal to cause the minds of thoughtful adults to function like spoiled children. Critical theory as a philosophical postulate was formed in Frankfurt, Germany. It was moved and then further developed by the Frankfurt School of Socialism founders at Columbia University. It created an atmosphere where everything could and should be questioned. Even the most basic realities of life, no matter how granular or petty, and yet asking questions would go nowhere because knowledge is unattainable in their portrayal of reality. As a street preacher, it is not uncommon to meet students influenced by critical theory. They willingly admit they cannot know things, which, of course, is knowledge. To make the statement, 
I cannot know a thing infers the person possesses the knowledge necessary to make such a statement. When I asked them why they paid thousands of dollars per semester to sit in a class and learn that they cannot know anything, looks of confusion often consumed their face. The empirical foundation that made America so strong in such a short time was replaced with nihilistic false truths. Purposefully, and with the help of American institutions, the media, Hollywood, music, universities, we could go on and on, these men sowed the seeds of destruction, hatred, and division under the guise of an intellectual search for truth and utopia. In the Greek tradition, Americans came to spend their time in nothing more but either to tell or hear some new thing. As a result, the American mindset has embraced Marxist nihilism in exchange for what has been traditionally called Judeo-Christian principles. Our country now rejects a foundation of truth in exchange for a no-holds-barred perversion of reality. The intellectual embrace of critical theory spread fast, ensuring the ideology that created German concentration camps and Soviet gulags became permanently entrenched in American institutions. This reality would have a slight reprieve in the 1960s when the Gulag Archipelago produced documented atrocities caused by the utopian dream. On the world stage, Solzhenitsyn caused men to be ashamed of any form of Marxist doctrine. But instead of total abandonment, the Marxists in America did what Marxists the world over tend to do. They go silent for a short time and regroup. They reemerge with a new implementation of the same game plan. Rather than spouting foolishness about class struggle in a prosperous America, they supplemented class with race. America's early problematic race relations created fertile ground for the Marxists to adapt their theory. From this time forward, Marxists in America would use any seemingly dispossessed group of people to help further their cause, even the most depraved of causes. They had no concern for the possible destructive realities that preying on race, mental illness, gender confusion, and moral degradation might cause. In fact, for the Marxists, this destruction is the ultimate goal. So they embraced homosexuality, the transgender community, racists, and any other hateful or confused group they could isolate and purport to defend. But no aspect of their doctrine touched the nerve of our nation like race relations. Of course, the 1960s would end with much-needed reform by way of the American legal system, adopting laws that gave black men and women in the United States full and deserved recognition. The Marxist flames stifled yet again for a short while. They continued a quiet and slow march through the institutions using both Fabian socialist methods and further planning for Marxist revolution through what became known as critical race theory. Critical race theory was birthed out of critical theory. It became prominent in the 1990s rather than dividing society into class as required by class-based forms of Marxism. They divide society by race. Certain races have achieved sainthood within this religious framework and others are irredeemably evil. No evidence of saint or devil need be presented. The critical race theory gods have made up their minds. Their praise or condemnation will stand. 
This very religious ideology has replaced critical theory to a large extent in America's academic institutions. But it hasn't stopped there. It has deeply permeated the American government to the highest levels. When we hear a politician speaking of social justice, equality, equity, privilege, or intersectionality, be sure they are adherents to the doctrines of critical race theory. Today, critical race theory has become a hot topic for discussion. White people are told to abandon their white privilege, curiously and often by other white people. Being white, according to this doctrine, is a one-way ticket to condemnation. No need to reveal any objective measure of racism. If you are white, you are condemned already. Based on their skin color, children are taught that they are either oppressed or oppressors. In other words, based upon the color of their skin, they are by nature victims or victimizers, privileged or imperialistic. It does seem curious that children sitting in the same classroom are taught that one has privilege over the other based upon skin color. This is the very definition of racism and discrimination. Marxism has a way of causing the most morally bankrupt among us to rise to the top. Critical race theory puts racists in charge of our dealings with racism. It's sort of like a murderer spouting the moral supremacies of life. In recent years, the heads of major universities have written open letters to their students and the world apologizing for systemic racism within their institutions. Of course, they are not racist. They certainly aren't systemically racist, but they are forced to play the game or be targeted by social justice mobs. This takes us back to the childish nature of critical theory. It was carried over into critical race theory and thereby enhanced. In an immature and childlike manner, critical race theory has white people bowing to their knees in apology. For what, you might ask? For being white. Critical race theory has created a scenario in which racist men and women force people to apologize or repent based on their skin color. Because race is such a touchy subject for most, the targets of such abuse are terrified to speak out. The childish nature of critical theory would once again take over. When a white person declares themselves anti-racist and therefore in no need of forced repentance, the social justice mob is provoked to shame that person. People's lives have been destroyed by the adherence of critical race theory doctrine. Should one disagree, it means they are indeed racist. No evidence needs to exist if the person with white skin admits to racism, they are racist. If the person with white skin denies they are racist, it is because they are racist. <laughs> this type of elementary school playground argumentation is their dominant tactic. You must be shamed like a little schoolgirl into submission. After America's long struggle with racism, leading to a civil war, and ultimately creating a society free of racism, our institutions are turned over to the racists that remain under the guise of a Marxist revolution. When dealing with critical race theory, one must keep in mind the goal is a revolution. Their aim is in no way to prevent racism. They are racist. The ideas they propagate are racist to the very core. They prey on America's past wrongs concerning race. They must prey on the past because little evidence of racism exists in modern America, except for the critical race theorist. What then does the implementation of such a worldview mean for Christians? 
Unfortunately, the group of cowards who claim the title in America are unsettled fools tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It is not a stretch to say that modern American Christians have not come into a form of unity based upon proper biblical knowledge of God. Jesus often criticized the Jews for their ignorance, which was based upon a failure to read the scriptures. In like manner, Christians in America operate as though they have no guide to assist them as strangers and pilgrims in this world. At this point, it seems Satan himself could stand in an American pulpit and many Christians would be none the wiser. Critical race theory is not an honest critique of a racist America which needs to clean her closets. It is a deceptive sleight of hand. It is cunning craftiness. It is a doctrine used by people who lie in wait for their moment to assume power via revolution. Their intent is conversion from biblical truth into racist indoctrination. They will teach men who have never been racist how to be critically racist. Critical race theory identifies Christianity itself as racist, imperialistic, and is to be destroyed. But that hasn't stopped Christians from adopting its tenets as a form of repentance for their perceived societal guilt. To appear anti-racist, you would throw out the word of God in exchange for the doctrines of ravenous wolves, wolves who do not even show up in sheep's clothing. They state their racist intent openly. Once truth is abandoned, men are then influenced by the slight of men upon deciding to participate in an imaginary world defined arbitrarily by racist reprobates. It's not clear how one returns to truth-based reality. Christians are asking America's racists to corrupt them intellectually, rob them physically, and shame them publicly. Choosing to abandon the word of God and going with the course of this world will bring about deserved consequences. What then should be the Christian's attitude toward race? As Christians, we do not have the liberty of having an opinion. Our opinions are required to be brought into subjection with the word of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Our responsibility is not to examine the opinions and doctrines of this world. We're not even permitted to depend upon our own personal ideas regarding race. We must bring our thoughts regarding this matter into subjection to the word of God. People who call themselves Christians are being swept away by Antifa and Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, conservatism, liberalism, republicanism, etc. It goes on and on. Because they did not consult God's word. In Genesis 1, verse 26 God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Man was made with the unbelievably unique image of God. Notice God offered no description of the man's skin color, 
We get no information regarding his language, no physical features. Man was made in God's image. The same is true for you. Whether you agree or not is irrelevant. God created you in his own image and thus demands the world treat you with a measure of dignity and respect expected of someone made in his image. The actual injustices in this world, not the social justice warrior first world perceived injustices, but real injustices, result when men fail to recognize the value of other people as defined by God himself. The value men place upon other men is the problem. Mothers today have no trouble at all with going to an abortion mill and brutally executing the child in her womb. We do not want to adopt moral values regarding the lives of men as defined by this world. We want to know what God says and thus proceed righteously in our dealings with other men. This fact alone should heighten the level of care we take when dealing with people. Men and women are made in God's image. As such, they deserve a measure of respect that is transcendent. Not a measure defined by our personal thoughts or feelings, but rather that which is firmly rooted in the scriptural idea that man is made in God's own image. It bears repeating over and over. If this reality was rooted in the hearts and minds of men and women, we would be willing and able to set aside culture and skin color to focus first on the fact God's very image stands before us and should be given a base level of respect and concern. After all, according to God, every nation of men on earth is made of one blood. In Acts 17, verses 24 through 28, God that made the world and all things therein seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Essentially, one man's hatred of another based upon his skin color is hatred for the very blood that produced them both. Again, we are not permitted to divide the world of men in accord with some academic theory. We are bound by the truth, which is found in God's word. God said every nation of men came from the same blood. So try not to hate yourself. Also, notice that God himself set the bounds of man's habitation for the sole purpose of provoking them to seek the Lord. God has no desire that man joins together under one government and language. Man's unity will be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. Eventually, God separated man into two camps. Though all men in every nation come from one blood, God chose to separate one nation from the others. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, 
and I will make thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. From that time forward, God identified two groups in the world. So if you were going to separate yourself by your group identity, based upon your flesh, you only have two options, Jew or Gentile. Any other description or moniker placed upon you is done so by deceitful men using craftiness to facilitate division. After God separated Abram to establish his chosen nation of Israel, the promises God made him were given to certain of his descendants. From Abraham, God chose Isaac. From Isaac, God chose Jacob. The Jews are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 9 make this clear. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. To this day, the Jews, Israel, are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everyone else, Gentiles. No distinction regarding color, language, or physical characteristics is necessary. The peoples in every nation under the sun bear the image of God. Likewise, they are or have been equally atrocious at some point in history. The Bible is clear. Regardless of Jew or Gentile, they are all under sin. Romans 3 verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. An interesting question is posed here. In speaking of the differences between the Jew and the Gentile, namely the fact the Jews were the people who received the word of God, the final analysis is that one is in no way better than the other. There is a great equalizer in this world that harms all men everywhere. Sin. We are all under sin, placing each of us in a desperate situation. Racially speaking, in the Bible, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. Most of that hatred was built upon one or the other spouting self-righteous banter regarding the superiority of their people, but in reality, living the way sinners have always lived. This divide served to keep the word of God away from the Gentiles. The Jews who were responsible for getting God's word to the nations failed to do so. Based upon self-perceived racial supremacy steeped in the fact that God chose the Jews and gave them his word. So God himself intervened and took two people groups who hated each other and made them one. Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That which divides one group of men from another is reconciled through the cross of Jesus Christ. Two are made one through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The development of critical race theory is simply one more racist divide that can be reconciled through Jesus Christ. In Christ, the Gentile is no longer a Gentile. In Christ, the Jew is no longer a Jew. We that are in Christ are the church of God. Our fleshly identity no longer matters, no longer counts, and no longer divides. We have come to understand far more critical matters are at play than something as shallow and as empty as another person's skin color. We should abandon the Marxist theories, theories meant to foster racism. Let the Marxists, along with Karl Marx, die alone with nine or ten people begrudgingly standing by their graveside. The way to break down racial divides is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cult of critical race theory, like all cults, preys on the personal guilt and religious inhibitions of men. We all have, at the very least, a general understanding that we are sinful creatures. Cults are formed when their leaders find a niche that allows them to exploit the realities of man's flawed condition. Centuries-long battles between the races fascinate us. Furthermore, the ease with which these wounds are manipulated by race baiters such as Black Lives Matter and useful idiots who signal their virtue to the cause prevents proper healing. Critical race theory has apparently formed a people who are the first of their kind, without spot and without blemish. <laughs> so holy are the adherents of this cult, they struggle to find a nation without blot, suitable for their own holy and blameless habitation. At this point, they must force their host country, who should be overwhelmingly humble to be in the presence of such perfection, to alter all institutions and foundations in accord with their racist demands. One must never be so crude and thoughtless to own a sense of dignity concerning their home country, not unless that country has sufficiently embraced the religious tenets of critical race theory, or if by chance said country is sufficiently composed of indigenous peoples. 
they may receive a temporary pass from the critical race theory inquisition. Countries whose cultural background has fostered corruption and backward thought should be elevated above the free world with its combined diversity of elevated thinking and solutions. Only in the West can one sit in the comfort of central heat and air conditioning with laptops that cost upwards of $1,000 and take to the internet to complain of persecution. The social justice warriors of the West equate to the world's most spoiled of brats. The patron saints of critical race theory are only outdone in reprobate behavior by their martyrs, the most notable of whom is George Floyd, a saintly figure known best for the direction he points his pistols. St. Floyd used his monk-like patronage here on earth to rob pregnant women, partake of massive doses of fentanyl, and engage in bouts with the police. All for the sake of righteousness, of course. His complete lack of character does not make his untimely death acceptable, though his martyrdom helped make the drug-addicted felon a saint and a police officer a devil. The ideological underpinnings of critical race theory serve to undermine its host society. They have proven themselves to be particularly ruthless and unscrupulous in the administration of their religious doctrine. One must understand... The priests of critical race theory speak ex cathedra. The arrogance of self-perceived infallibility causes anyone who chooses to live life within the confines of reality to cower in their presence. These are people who enjoy their outrage, even feeling a sense of entitlement thereof. Critical race theory is simply another play from the Marxist playbook. May I note here that every revolution in history leads to the inevitable death of both non-revolutionaries and eventually the revolutionaries themselves also. Revolutions of the Marxist sort are meant to finally usher in the utopia, heaven on earth. In the end, what is established is a terror whose next of kin is hell. Or maybe we should expect utopia to be something like Dante's Inferno. Each level can be dedicated to the group identity assigned by the critical race theory doctrine of intersectionality. Either way... Only the Marxist revolutionaries at the top of the food chain will prosper, though they will suffer from continual paranoia. Communism is known for its striking corruption. Marxists rely on ideological manipulation to stir up the revolution. As such, manipulation must continue at all costs for fear that the truth will end the revolution. This is commonly known as the narrative. Every member of society must confess the party line with their mouth and at least make an open show of the possibility they also believe in their heart. Regardless, the revolution devours. At some point, even the best of revolutionaries will take the ride to Lubyanka. Critical race theorists have mastered the art of moral blackmail. This intermingling with Marxism and postmodernism allows them to break free from the Marxist narrative just enough to hold whole societies hostage. They exchange class for race, and now they have the ingredients for massive forms of societal ransomware. All men everywhere are required to not only repent, but join the evangelistic effort to convert the world, or else... By the way, personal conversion does not mean one's sins have been forgiven, just temporarily set aside, as long as the person can display some momentary use for the revolution. 
When revolutionaries reach the end of their need for any individual, they will be brought before the judgment seat where they will be thoroughly berated and condemned to the inferno. If one doesn't participate, they are deemed complicit. But participation can only provide temporary penance. For now, the inmates are running the prison. The unapologetic racists are defining racism. They don't have quite the power they desire yet, but they have tasted the Marxist thirst for power, and they will not rest until they have their fill. I would steer clear of critical race theory and stick with the word of God. Thank you for listening, and God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.